Brogdon gets around. Oh, yeah! It down! Yeah! Way to go out of Malcolm! Strong left hand finish there! Here's a long three by going on guys welcome back to another episode of the circle city sports podcast i am host sam as always and with me as always jake elrod today uh we're in the middle of Pacers' long all-star break they didn't play since they haven't played since last wednesday and of course we're releasing to this on thursday they don't play until friday night in new york so um gave us a chance a little bit to recuperate kind of take a break for a minute um but Jake, we got to talk about that that losing streak that the Pacers incur that the Pacers had uh, right before the All Star break, losing what six of the last seven or seven of the last seven of the last eight, something like that. Um, but they were able to get a pretty big win over the Milwaukee Bucks right before the break, even without Giannis and Kumbo and I think George Hill and Kyle Korver didn't play. But um, I know I know I saw a little bit more defensive, you know, activity and a lot more energy from the game. And I know you really wanted to talk about that Bucks game. Uh, and how it stacked up compared to the rest of the games that the Pacers lost uh, right before the All-Star break. Yeah, it was a stark contrast from what we had seen prior to that. A lot more activity, a lot more communication. It just seemed a lot more fluid. I mean, that was the best best way I can put it. And, you know, when, when people talk about energy, I, I've read that word a lot. People talking about fatigue, is the team tired? Well, you know, one thing that I didn't hear talk about was a lot of when you see energy is being able to attack instead of react. And I saw a lot more attacking from this unit. I saw a lot more of guys being comfortable working around each other. I saw a more aggressive team attacking the basket. They crushed Milwaukee in the paint, the 54 to 42 in the paint. You know, they were able to jump that free throw number that, in my opinion, is very concerning when you have a tall lineup of guys like Brogdon, Oladipo, Sabonis, Turner, Warren, all those guys are, are guys that are able to draw contact, able to get to the to the bucket. And coming into this game, they only attempt 19 per game, which is dead last in the league. And I think that that's one thing that needs to change. A lot of people have been on that, uh, that that's got to change. And they were able to, to notch that up to 24 against Milwaukee, which is a much, much better number. Um, and, and again, that just has to do with our numbers in the paint. I mean, when you outscore a team in the paint like that, that shows the team is attacking and being aggressive. Um, their rebounding numbers were a lot better. Sabonis only grabbed eight, and you know usually that spells problems for us. But we're able to lose the rebounding battle by only one, fifty-two to fifty-one. And Milwaukee is one of the best rebounding teams in the league, even with Giannis out. So that was a big difference as well. Um, you know, I mean, it, and when when you circle back to Sabonis's impact, when he's not on the floor, they're only collecting around forty-six percent of their rebounds, which it would be dead last in the league. So you talk about rebounding without Sabonis in and free throw shooting, which Sabonis is one of our, probably our leading free throw shooter on the season hit with a, you take him out of those categories and team wide, that's a problem. So for them to be able to, to get better in those categories going into the all-star break, I think that's a good omen, a good sign. They just need to continue to keep those numbers trending upwards. And, and I think that that's a real formula for this team. I know we talk about the three point uh, shots. I think me and you can both agree if they can shoot, uh, around 32, 33 a game. I think that's serviceable enough for them, uh, considering the players they have. They don't have a ton of three-point shooters on the starting five, um, and then just a couple guys on the bench that do that. So if they can, uh, the last, the last, 
you know, week or so, they have been doing better shooting threes. And if they can do that, I think that's fine. But it's really the, the free throw shooting and the rebounding is something I'm really going to be looking at. And then also defensive rotation. Um, I saw a couple plays that they did a lot better. You know, they still were helping, but they're able to rotate back onto their guy a lot quicker. So just a lot of little things that came together that resulted in a win that they desperately needed. Yeah, and it just seemed like right out of the gate, they really jumped on them defensively. And it's a lot easier. The Bucks. I mean, Grant, they're not the same without Giannis and Kyle Korver and George Hill, but they were 5-0 and on the season without Giannis and Kubo. So, I mean, they were, they were still a very good team without their best player. And I think of it like this. We keep talking about the free throw, uh, the free throw rate and how it's dead last in the league. I, I'll be very interested to see the rest of the year now that the news has came out that Victor is no longer on the minute restriction. Um, I think he's going to probably play about 35-ish minutes or so. That's about what the other starters play. But I'll be very interested to see if Victor, maybe maybe the second half of the, of the season after the all-star break, maybe he starts attacking the basket more. Maybe that will help our free throw rate. We'll start shooting more free throws. Because, I mean, you look at the guys in our lineup. Sabonis, he plays through contact a lot. And he's such a big, imposing big man that while, yes, he might get fouled to like a guard or a wing, it doesn't look like a foul on him. It's a lot like when play, players used to foul Shaq a lot and he didn't get called for it. Uh, you look at T.J. Warren, he's a guy that finishes. He's not more of a he's, – he's more of a finisher than more of getting into the lane and getting contact. Miles um, Turner is more of a perimeter shooter. Malcolm Brogdon's more of a finisher, not looking for contact. And then, I mean, you look down their list, Jeremy Lamb, too. Uh, I think it also just kind of just really is just about the mid-range shot. We take so many mid-range shots um, that we're not necessarily attacking the basket. And maybe with Victor coming back and playing, you know, 35 minutes or whatever, um, maybe that free throw rate will go up. And then one more thing I want to say about the three-point the three point rate that we take. We shot about our average, 27-28, which is dead last first in the league. The Bucks shot 37 threes. Um, against us the other night. They shot 10 more threes than us, and they shot 2% better, which is you know not a whole lot, but they made four more threes. And I, I think that's just a perfect example of, you know, if you shoot with volume, even if you only shoot 35%, that's four more threes than, you know, what we would have made on our rate, shooting the same percentage, and, you know, four points, you know, four three-pointers is the difference of 12 points right there. So I think it'll be very interesting because, you know, the the three-point shooting is good now, but I'll be very interested to see what Malcolm Brogdon does in the second half of the season. I hope he gets his shot. I, I don't know if it's that concussion. We've talked about it a lot. I don't know if it's that concussion or whatever it is that his shooting has really dropped since probably before the Western Conference road trip. I'll just be very interested to see um, how him, how, how basically the backcourt will play if they change the game a little bit at all once we come out of this all-star break. Yeah, and I think, you know, you talk about the offense as a whole, and a big thing, you talk about this team not shooting a lot of threes, and Victor Oladipo coming back, I think has really brought, you know, or or not really brought anything up, but, you know, has really kind of exposed that problem, because the thing that the Pacers have done well all season is shoot uh, consistently. They average 52% from the field, which is one of the top five shooting percentages in the league. That's what's keeping them alive because that type of consistency is very hard to find. And when you have Victor Oladipo coming in, taking 13, 14 shots a game, and if you look at these numbers, he's only shooting 33% from the field and 24% from beyond the arc. Those two numbers are killer for a team that's really living on the edge 
in yeah, terms that's, of that's even, I, I know that's something I was concerned about because, you know, Victor, I think, I can't remember what the exact number was, but I mean, I know he was shooting at a high rate when he was coming in off the bench and even when he was starting. And, you know, Wednesday night was his most efficient shooting night and he shot five of seven. And I know he's trying to integrate himself back in the offense, but maybe, you know, once we get out of this all-star break over this next week, maybe he starts taking 10 shots a game or so. And, you know, maybe he takes two or three threes. And, you know, if he could start shooting around 50%, then maybe he can jump to, you know, 15 shots per game once we get close to the playoffs. And I hope he, I hope he saw how the formula worked. And, and again, I've, I've defended him on our podcast because he's taking open shots. I know a lot of people feel like he's kind of forcing himself in. But in his defense, I mean, this is a scorer. This is a leader of this team. And he's and coming teams back. teams are going under screens. Teams are very much going under screens and letting him shoot, which I will very much take. Because, I mean, if he's, if he's shooting threes while defenders are going under these screens, if he's hitting 33% right now, I will very much take that. The problem is he's only hitting about 15%. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to say. They're baiting him into doing what he wants to do anyway. So hopefully he can start backing off that and realizing that T.J. Warren, I think, is really the X factor in this offense moving forward for us to kind of navigate through this kind of, you know, adjustment period and trying to find ourselves as a team. I mean, I think Sabonis has done a great job this year in terms of scoring. Uh, You know, Brogdon's been, you know, he started off really hot. Now he's down. I'm interested to see how he looks coming out of the All-Star break. But if you look at our most creative and effective scorer, it's T.J. Warren. I mean, and I don't think it's particularly close. And, you know, for him to take 19 shots, I think that's good. I mean, I don't think he should be attempting 14 shots per game. I think that's a criminally low number for a guy that's shooting 52%, that's scoring over 18 per game, that's been active in every game except for a couple because of a concussion. And he's shooting over 40% from three. I think he's about 37 38%. So he's yeah. efficiently scoring. I mean, he, like you said, he's shot 16 of 19 against the Bucks. I mean, I really think when it all comes down to it, you know, it, even in a playoff series, we're going to have to – I think T.J. Warren's going to be that guy. We're going to be, hey, the offense hasn't done anything all day. We, we're going to throw you the ball. We need you to get a bucket. Cause, and I think that's something I was concerned about when Warren came on the Pacers was, is he an efficient shooter? We know he takes a lot of shots, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm bad. I, I don't like that. I'm just, I was just worried, are they going to be efficient, good shots, somewhat within the offense, and are they going to be good looks? And, I mean, he's very much proved me wrong, and I'm glad he's taking these good shots. Yeah, and and, and again, I, I dug into more of his, his numbers out of curiosity, and, you know, he's outside of the top 100 in the entire league in usage. And I just think that that's hurting the ceiling of this offense, especially when you talk about an offense that doesn't naturally shoot a lot of threes, then go to the guy that can score in the twos at an elite uh, elite way, and that's T.J. Warren. He can score anywhere um, within that boundary. And like you said, he's a good three-point shooter. So I just think that number needs to uptick towards about 16 or 17 per game while Malcolm and Victor kind of find this, you know, rhythm together because, you know, I mean, and I've talked about it before, I, I think that that duo is going to be fantastic because Brogdon's better off ball anyway. If you watch him in Milwaukee, and I think that, that's led to his increased usage with as a ball handler. I think has kind of led to some fatigue and some, you know, aches also, and I, I believe I don't know about last year, but his rookie year and his second year, I want to say, he was all he was he was basically the sixth man off the bench. I think maybe last year he was a starter, but to go from basically playing 27, 28 ish minutes to playing 35 minutes basically every night, I know that's going to add up eventually. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's part of what ha- what's happened. And then you compound the situation with he's had a concussion, you know, and those things can, tend to linger now. Like, you know, he may have been cleared to come back, and that's all fine and dandy, but you still need to refine yourself. I feel like just physically he still looked off, um, you know, and then trying to reintegrate himself with Victor in that backcourt. I, I think the duo is going to be great long-term. You know, again, when I watched him in Milwaukee, when we when we acquired him, I wanted to see – kind of what his role was and he was best off ball anyway. So Victor can have the ball, control the ball. And I think Malcolm will be fine with that. Um, you know, but while we try to work through how they're going to complement each other again, I just think TJ Warren needs to be much more heavily used than he currently is. You know, he has games where he only attempts eight or nine shots. And I, I just don't think that that's acceptable. Even if he's not having a great scoring night. I mean, I just think that he needs to be heavily involved every night as we, as we navigate through this, I like, I like Sabonis's usage. I think, you know, 14 shots per game for him is good, but TJ Warren's just too creative and too effective with the ball to not, uh, you know, get some more looks at, at the basket. And I'll be very, I would be very interested to look this up, his game, his game, or his game stats per game and see what, like how many games this year has he shot under 50%. When was the last game that happened? And does I feel like very often. Yeah, I know. It just it uh, and even like what like what you say when he only takes nine shots, and for a guy like T.J. Warren, a guy that uh, he's he's so, he's sort of like a microwave guy, a guy that like you know he gets hot with the more shots he takes. Even when he takes nine shots, he still hits five, six, seven of them. So he's still hitting a a good percentage. And I remember that Magic game early, early in the year. I think it was probably this was one of the first ten games of the year, and he only had like six points on like one of seven shooting or whatnot. And I, I've been, I was just thinking, I'm like, when was the last time Warren had a game like that where he had single-digit points, shot like below 20 or 30%? And I just can't remember that happening. So I know Warren, I know cash considerations, I don't know how they're doing over in Phoenix, but I think I think what we did in getting TJ Warren was probably, I think that's going to be very an underrated move, and I hope that it ends up being a big difference in the playoffs once we get once we get here. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they how they adjust and and moving forward with him as our primary scorer because right now I think he's our best option in that in that category. So let's move on to the listener questions. We uh, we really appreciate you guys sending these questions. These are really all of them I'm I really like. So uh, we'll get into the first one from Ian Henson. Uh, he asks, "Do you think Miles Turner is undervalued by the Pacers?" I laughed at this question. I told Ian, "Don't do this to us." It was hilarious though. It's a great question. Uh, it's a very layered question. I don't think there's a clear-cut answer for Ian because Miles is a very polarizing figure for the Pacers. Me and you kind of joke. He's like, you know, Jacoby Brissett. There's a lot of people that love him, a lot of people that hate him. And, you know, the answer's in between. I mean, if you ask the people, if you if you go off the people that say he stinks and he should be traded and he's soft, th- then the answer is yes, he's criminally underrated. If you go on the side of people that say, oh, he's an irreplaceable piece to this team, then, then he's overrated. I mean, I think he's a quality starter on this team. I think he has value. You saw his value against Milwaukee um, in, in matchups like that. He he is a nice luxury to have um, next to Sabonis when Sabonis doesn't necessarily have good matchups. And, you know, vice versa, just like Sabonis is good to have when, you know, Miles doesn't have good matchups going for him. I mean, they both, you know, have, have ups and downs to what they do for this roster. You know, but ultimately, I mean, I, I just – I would tend to think he is underrated a bit because I hear a lot of negativity around him. And I think he does a lot of things well. 
Um, but I, I don't I don't necessarily agree with the people that say he's, you know, vital to this team's success and we can't win without him. I mean, you know, we're seven and three on the season without him. Um, you know, certainly do I want him here? Do I want him around? Yeah. It's nice to have a six eleven uh forward. It's nice to have that front court like that. Um, you know, but but at the same time, you know, there's there's also things he doesn't do well. So um in terms of overrated or underrated, I, I guess I would lean towards yeah, he's a little underrated because there's people that say he stinks, which is not true at all. He's a good player. Um, you know, so it's an interesting question. It's definitely a, a, a very layered question because there's so many varying degrees of opinion on Miles. But, you know, I know he's a great kid. He represents his franchise well. He's one of my favorites because of how friendly, fan friendly he is. I told that story, you know, a couple months ago on the pod about him um, making gift bags when he had did an appearance um, as, as I, it was, he was either his rookie year or second year, he made gift bags when he made an appearance at a local store. And, you know, that made me a fan of his. So I love him on the team. I think he does some things well, and, and hopefully he's around for a while. So for me, I actually, when I first saw this question, I thought, I don't think the Pacers undervalue him. Because if they undervalued him, they would have either traded him in the offseason when they signed, when they re-signed Sabonis, or they would trade him in the all-star break. Because I would bet, I know there's a lot of teams that would really love to have Miles Turner on this team. And I think that shows how much value he has because he is a shot blocker. He's a he's a pretty good defender. I mean, I remember Kyrie Irving saying after the first-round playoff series we had against him last year, he said Miles is arguably probably the best perimeter-defending centers in the league. And that's I think that's, that's pretty important when in, in the playoffs, especially when you're needing to switch sometimes two guards, how he can hold his own on the perimeter. But... I mean, you, and he can also shoot threes at a fairly good rate, around 38, 30, 39%. So I don't think the Pacers undervalue him at all. I don't even think they overvalue him really at all. They gave him a nice contract, uh, that four-year extension. I think it was, well, about $20 million or so. It was in that range or so. I just, like like you said, I think Miles is a really good starter in this league. I think he's a capable starter in this league. And I, would, I for one, would be very, very much upset if the Pacers trade him, because we need that anchor, we need that shot blocker in the middle of our in the middle of our defense. Because even though how much I love Sabonis, he is not what Miles Turner can bring on on the defensive side. And I give I give Miles a lot of credit for, you know, changing his role. We think of him in the last few years when he was um a full time starter, more of like that third or fourth option offensively. And now he's become basically the fifth option with almost in in any of our offensive lineups. And that's really just because of how much more talent we've acquired. So I don't think the Pacers undervalue him, but I also don't think they overvalue him. Um, I think they know exactly what they got in Miles Turner. And I, I, I know they're not going to be dumb enough to trade him in the near future. Yeah. I, I looked at it from a fan perspective. I don't know if he was talking about, you know, for underrated from the fans or from the organization, but if you talk about from the organization, then he's not underrated from them, in my opinion, I mean, they, you know, before Sabonis kind of forced his way into the lineup with the way he played last year, I mean, they gave him four years, you know, to, to really prove himself as, you know, the surefire center of the future, the all-star player, you know, all those. And like added- outside and outside of Victor Odipo, he's like, uh, before Brogdon came in, he was the spokesperson. He was the person that you put on Pacers ban- uh, banners and billboards all over Indianapolis. Yeah. I mean, so I, I don't think, I mean, I know, and there's, there's a lot of talk about his sacrifice, and I get it. You know, a lot of fans believe that he can be a a, star, a superstar player. Some people, I mean, some some people believe that. I've you know conversed with people that believe that. 
and I get it. You know, I see the same bursts that people see. Um, you know, but the you know the honest truth with this organization, at least, is they gave him four years to be the bona fide one hundred ten percent guy. Even last year, when Sabonis was killing it, there were stretches when when Miles would struggle, and I went to bat for Miles, saying, "Listen, Sabonis is doing this against bench players. He's only doing it for twenty minutes a game. Turner has to do all these things." And, you know, I wasn't really on board with it, but, you know, they, they never benched Miles last year, even when Sabonis was putting up really, really good numbers on the bench, um, you know, and he went through his struggle. So I think the organization overall has done a great job standing behind Miles, giving him ample opportunity, even now, again, you know, even with Sabonis being in the in the lineup, you know, all that stuff, you know, I still think, you know, they're they're trying to let him do his thing. There's unfortunately four other guys that can score, but he's had ample opportunity here, I think, to to show what he can do. And, and right now he's just kind of in a position where, you know, he has to do what everyone else is doing. We talked about Warren only taking 14 shots per game. Unfortunately, everyone's having to sacrifice, um, you know, to win. And he's a part of that. And I, I really appreciate him doing that. Let's move on to the next question from Nolan of the uh, Smothered Chicken podcast. Uh, he, he's, he asked, do you believe there's any way Aaron Holiday can get back into the rotation? And if yes, why or how? Right now, the only way I see is through injury. Um, I think McMillan pretty much, unless TJ McConnell or Jeremy Lamb just completely crap the bed in the rest of the season, I, I don't foresee Aaron coming back into the lineup. Now, if the bench starts to really struggle, then he may consider taking Jeremy Lamb out. I've, I've talked about Jeremy Lamb kind of being an X factor and all this, you know, quite a bit. He's really, really the, the question as to how is this bench going to look. Because we know he's been, he's been consistent with the bench unit, yeah. scoring wise at least. His defense is a big question. And I was going to give him his due. I think you know, in the small sample size we have, he's he's been pretty good. I'm still I'm still curious on him because Aaron. One thing Aaron was doing really well was establishing himself as an off ball catch shoot a catch and shoot guy next to McConnell and all that. He wasn't he wasn't demanding too much ball time. And I don't know if long-term Jeremy Lamb's going to be able to fill that same kind of role because we know, you know, between McConnell, McDermott, and Sabonis, that's going to be a large part of the ball handling time in that second unit. So I think Jeremy Lamb's going to have to adjust what he's done a little bit. But so far, I think he's done good. I think he's fit in with that unit well. Um, you know, and, and unless him and McConnell just really play terribly or if one of them gets injured, unfortunately, I don't think, Aaron's going to get too much more run this season. And, you know, I'm sure he wants to see him back in there. That's why I asked, um, you know, and, and I want to see him more because I think he made really nice strides. To be honest, I wasn't too high on him last season. I didn't really like what I saw, um, you know, and this year I'm kind of really intrigued by what he could be in the future for us. And, you know, they're going to continue to bring him along and develop him and, you know, talk about sacrifice. Aaron's doing it right now. I mean, cause he, I think he deserved a spot in the rotation. He had, he had some struggles at times where he would be frustrating, you know, when he would miss shots. He was arguably and, our sixth man at some points of the season. Yeah. I mean, but he, he, I think he's played well enough to earn a spot in the rotation and he's just unfortunately not going to get it. And, you know, I think he's been mature about the situation and, you know, unfortunately with only, I think 23 games after the all-star break is left. Unfortunately, I think that's probably the the last you're going to see major minutes out of Aaron because he's obviously not going to crack the rotation in the playoffs. But, you know, if we don't, then I think it was a very successful sophomore campaign for Aaron because I think that now he really has established himself as a viable option 
even if it's not as a point guard, I really liked what I saw from him as an off-ball guard with the bench unit. I thought he was a really good catch-and-shoot player. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with him moving forward. But in terms of this season, I think that you know we've probably seen the last of him in a major role. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat with you. I think if we're talking game by game, I think if unless Jeremy Lamb or one, any of the guards really get in any kind of foul trouble, then we might not see Aaron. I mean, hey, look at Edmund Sumner. We saw him for a quick moment. Uh, right before the All Star break, and we're, we have no, we have we have not heard of him since. So I think Aaron. I mean, like you said, unless there's an injury to the backcourt or if there's serious foul trouble with the backcourt, I don't see Aaron coming back in. But I mean, I would like, I I would be I, I would be very much open to if we're in a playoff series and we're going to start focusing more on the playoffs now. In a playoff series, let's say your offense is really bogged down over like the over a five or six minute stretch like we tend to do, I would like to see us throw Aaron Holiday in and say, hey, go get us a bucket or two. Like, get get us going because I, I think he could be that scrappy type of guy. We've seen him, you know, dive after loose balls, take charges, get be a pest on defense. And he's not, I, he's not the greatest defender, but he could be a pest on defense. I think I'm, w- there might be a situation where we see him, you know, play spot three or four or five minutes in a playoff series that end up turning a game for us. So I think all in all, the last 25 games or so over the season, I don't see him back in a rotation in a consistent basis, maybe game by game, you know, pending the situations. But sadly, I don't see him back in the lineup consistently uh, the rest of the year. So we'll move on to the next question. Eric, um, Eric Seaman asks, what are the three main things the Pacers need to do to get themselves into a top seed in the East? playoff time and I'm going to guess that when he says top seed probably a top four seed which um, I know right be- right before we got Victor back we were looking at the two seed really and then you know Toronto went on that big win streak and the Pacers went on a couple couple lo- or went on a little, little losing streak so um, what, what do you think of the three main things that the Pacers are going to have to do to get themselves into a three or four seed well we we talked about it I think really in the beginning of the show obviously I think they need to do a much better rebounding for me is, is as much of a problem as the three point is to you. Like, you know, the three point shots going to give you an aneurysm the the rebounding is going to give me an aneurysm. Cause I'm sick of seeing teams get these second chance, wide open shots, you know, sick of seeing our guards, not boxing out all that. And stuff. I don't even think the Pacers need to out rebound every opponent. I think if you're just like within five every game, I think that's fine. Cause they're, I know they're near the last in the league and in, in, uh, in total rebounding. Just be respectable. I mean, that's, I mean, at least just be middle of the pack. Like, I don't even expect them to be a top five unit at this juncture. I thought they were going to be much better because I like the size in our lineup, but obviously that's not going to happen for whatever reason. I just don't understand how long you can go in a season without your guards and, and stuff, learning how to communicate and box out. And it's just, that's what's, it's just a little effort thing that that's mind boggling to me. Hopefully they, you know, kind of reset, watch some tape during this time and, you know, they adjust to that because the rebounding to me, if you're not a team that's going to shoot a lot of threes and score a lot of points, you better be fundamentally sound and not rebounding is as elementary as it gets in this league. And the fact that they can't rebound is a huge concern for me. It's frustrating because like I said, it tends to lead to a lot of wide open threes. I mean, I can't, I can't count on both my hands and toes and your hands and toes. How many mm-hmm. times we've seen in the season where, where a team just gotten a wide open, just three-point shot because we couldn't grab a rebound and then they give up another rebound and then but at that point you're just so far out of position 
that you're not able to get back to your guy. And, you know, at that point, you're just dead in the water. So the rebounding, number one, number two, I want to see this team shoot more free throws. You brought up a good point with Victor being back, being that attacking the rim guy. And I know maybe Malcolm and TJ aren't aren't at that at their core, but just try a couple times in a game. Just just push, push the issue a little bit. Try to draw some fouls because 19 a game, again, if you're not going to shoot threes, then you have to be able to produce points somewhere else. And, you know, the thing is, this Pacers team is really good at shooting free throws. I know last year they were terrible. They were just so bad shooting free throws. And now this year you have a much better shooting uh, free throw shooting team. They need to take advantage of that strength. I mean, you have Malcolm Brogdon who's a 90% free throw shooter. TJ Warren's over 80%. Victor Oladipo has been outstanding so far shooting free throws since he's been back. Sabonis has been serviceable. Miles has been serviceable. So you really don't have a core free throw shooter in your rotation, even on the bench. So they just have to do something to be able to draw some fouls and get to the free throw line, because I think that's a really big advantage that this team has over other teams that they're not able to utilize. And then finally, defensive rotations on the perimeter. You know, we see just far too often guys trying to sag off on help defense and they just get way too far off. You know, the defensive rotations on screens, um, pick and roll situations. It's just, it's just a mess right now. And I understand with Victor coming back, that's been a problem. You know, before he came back, this team was a top 10 defensive unit. I think with him, when this team is fully healthy, TJ Warren has been a big surprise on that side of the ball. I think one through five, we have a really solid defensive unit. So I think that once they get that figured out, those will those will kind of shore up. But, you know, that still it's a problem as of right now. And that the defensive rotation on perimeter shooters is something I want to see them do a lot better in. So my number one, and these are not in one, two, three order. These are just the three. I think the three-point shooting, and I'm gonna focus on three-point shooting as a whole because we looked really since the West Coast trip, or even before that a little bit. Pacers really struggled shooting the ball, shooting the three-pointer, and even you know with their lack of attempts, like I've constantly talked about, you still got him at a good percentage. Like I know the Pacers shoot about, I want to say close to 40% from three-point line as a team on the year. And while they're last in in, or in attempts, you know, if you're going to shoot so few, you got to hit basically 40, you got to hit an astronomical amount. And I think if the Pacers, they're going to, they're at 28, 29 right now, average per game. If they can get up to 35 or 30, 33 or 35 a game and maintain around 35 to 37%, I think that'll be a big difference. Um, and then another one I'm looking at is the schedule. As a whole, we got the Knicks coming up on Friday night, the Raptors in Toronto again on Sunday night, and we've got the uh, Charlotte Horn- the Charlotte Hornets and the Portland Trailblazers at home on Tuesday and Thursday, and then on Friday and then on Saturday night we're at Cleveland. So I think looking short term, the rest of the month you've got to at least go four and one in this stretch, and preferably you're going to have to win that Toronto game, and that kind of leads to my third point is. Well, you've got to win these um, these regular season series against these top ten against these top teams in the East, or at least break even. We know with Philly right now we're two and one on them. We get one more game with them. Toronto we're we're down two one, so we need to get that game in Toronto uh, on Sunday night. Um, if you look at Milwaukee, I think we're two and one against them. So if we can get that last one and make it two and two, that'd be nice. Um, look at Boston, we're one and zero on them. We get two more matchups with them. One is on a Tuesday night in March uh, at home. That's a good matchup. If we can get that game, that'll be great. Uh, we've got the Miami Heat two more times. We're down 2-0 to them. Uh, if we can 
tie that series, that'd be great. Um, that's kind of my three main points, but the one I'm really emphasizing is winning these Eastern Conference series, or at least tying them, because that's going to come down to the tiebreakers at the end of the year, and that could be a difference between playing the first round, game one of the, uh, the first round at home, or going to Miami, Toronto, Philly, or Boston uh, for game one and not having home court advantage. Yeah, great point. I mean, we, we've got to be able to close those out. Um, you know, those are all tough teams. And, you know, the good thing is during this stretch, yeah, we went one and six, but, you know, we played Toronto tough. We played Milwaukee really well. We obviously won that game, even though Giannis is, wasn't in there. Um, you know, I felt like we played really well against the good teams we played. I actually felt like we played better against those teams. So I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel in that aspect, at least. So let's move on to the next question from Naptown Hoops, a guy I know I talk to a lot on Twitter. He asks, this is a pretty interesting question. What are, your, what are you most excited for with, with, it, uh, with Indianapolis being on the clock for the All-Star game uh, next season? Man, I saw this question, and, you know, I, I thought it was a great question because it stumped me. You know, honestly, just another chance for the city to put itself back on the map. You know, there, I've seen a lot of jokes about, oh, well, at least we got Chicago because now it's in Naptown next year. You know, Indianapolis put on one of the best Super Bowls in history. Unfortunately, I didn't go there. I fully intend to be there for All-Star Weekend because I feel like I sold myself short with not going to the Super Bowl festivities after the the reviews I had heard about it. You know, but that's all you hear about that was it was one of the best Super Bowls ever. Well, even, not, I know it's it's I know it's not NBA, but, you know, NFL people talk about all the time how much they love that the NFL Combine is in Indianapolis because you got the convention center. The stadium is downtown. You got a lot of hotels downtown. The airport is really close by. They like how the accessibility is so easy in Indianapolis. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's just it's just going to give this the city a chance to be able to put itself back in the national limelight. Um, I, I'm just interested to see how they're able to not necessarily match Chicago, but kind of bring their own flavor to the All Star Weekend. I was really impressed with. I don't think we'll be able to match Chicago just because of the. Um, and I hate to say this, but the tragedy between behind Kobe Bryant passing away. Um, and just how, you know, they were able to put on a great show for Kobe and everything like that. I don't know how we'll even be able to touch how, how good that was. And really, if you if you look at it, man, Sarah, I don't know if you got to watch the dunk contest and the three-point competition, but it was probably the best that I've seen in my years of watching the and watching Saturday, the, um, the Saturday contest. And then even the game on Sunday, I hate to say it, but I fell asleep before the fourth quarter, but... I got to rewatch it, and I'm like, man, I don't know how Indianapolis tops what Chicago did this weekend. Yeah, I mean, that's why I tried to avoid the word match. I mean, the star power that comes out of Chicago in terms of, you know, the common performance. And, you know, they had uh, they had some other, I think, uh, Jennifer Hudson performed. And, you know, just, just things like that that they can provide that, unfortunately, we can't. Like you said, the, the tribute they put on all weekend for Kobe Bryant was phenomenal. I thought they did an outstanding job with that. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm just interested to see what kind of unique Indianapolis flavor they can bring to the all-star game and, and kind of reflect off of what Chicago did and really, you know, embracing their heritage and, and their city's culture and, you know, injecting that into the all-star uh, festivities. And uh, I, I want to see Indianapolis do some of the same things because I think the city is extremely slept on. I think that it's a fantastic city. I, I'm, I live three hours away. And I'll just up and drive down there for the day because I love it. I love the city. And I think a lot of people would, too, if, you know, they, they gave it a more of a chance. So just for them to be able to have this weekend as their own, I think, is what I'm most excited about. And, 
you know, hopefully excited to get some more Pacers players represented in the all-star game next year. We only have one this year, but you know, realistically, I think there's, there's three or four guys on the roster that, that could represent this franchise next year. So hopefully it's a very uh, Pacers, Pacers initiated uh, all-star weekend. And, and hopefully we represent our franchise in the city there heavily next year. So there's a lot to be excited about, but ultimately I just wanted to see how this, how the city is going to be able to bring their own unique flavor to the weekend. And see what I'm most excited about, of course, is, you know, with the all-star break, it's all like the NFL, like the Super Bowl. How you, you get the spotlight and the, you know, the all-star break is not like what the, the poll is for the Super Bowl, but you get basically that whole week where one sport is gravitated to your your city. And I'll be very excited to see what Indianapolis is able to do. Um, the one thing I'm looking forward to, we saw how Common and uh, a lot of the Common, it was Common and DJ Khaled and all those people from Chicago, Dwayne Wade, all those people got to show out because they're from the Chicago area and everything like that. I'm going to be very interested to see not only how does, how does Indianapolis present the All-Star game in the contest on Saturday, but who are they going to have? I know Pacers Twitter got to talk about it a lot. Uh, some people were joking like Dave Letterman, uh, Victor Oladipo singing before the game and everything like that because I think it's just a slight joke because you know we don't necessarily have the star power and the talent that the Chicago area has. But this is going to be something very going to be interesting to see who they bring in. Uh, as an Indianapolis native, native to to showcase the All Star break. Um, so we'll go on to the second to last question. I just added a question for myself here. Um, this is from Corey Waldron of Off the Glass, uh, and he's got a billion different other podcasts. If you guys haven't checked them out, you got to. They're really great stuff. But he asks, and you've answered this question before. Your what is your ideal playoff matchup for the Indiana Pacers? And I'm he, I'm going to guess that's in the first round. No, I know, I know. You call off black, and I was thinking about the answer to this question, and I almost went with your answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to double down on it. I know, uh, I know. If Alex and Fachi are listening to this, they might want to string me up and beat me like a pinata for saying it yet again. But I'm going to go with the 76ers, man. I mean, I said it a couple months ago when they had me on as a guest. Um, you know, they were shocked, but you know, it's just that's just a team that just screams dysfunction right now not just off the court, but also just their spacing hurts my eyeballs. Um, you know, I just think they're too overly reliant on Embiid and, you know, kind of their counterpoint was, well, he's killed the Pacers. We'll let him kill the Pacers. If he's going to get 35, then so be it. The, the, the other, you know, 80 to 90 points has to come from somewhere. And I like the way we match up with them size-wise and physically. I think that we, I think that, that just out of all the teams, I'm not saying Philadelphia is a bad team. I still think they're a, a good team, but, They've underachieved by a ton this year. There's a lot of dysfunction. And, you know, who would you replace them with? I mean, I definitely don't want to, you know, face the shooting death lineup that Boston has. You know, Miami's just I – think, I think Miami is just a, a more polished version of what Philadelphia could be with just a, a lot of size and length and athleticism, good coaching, better teamwork. I definitely don't want to see them in the first round. Um, you know, so I just – I don't really see another team that I'm just like – yeah, I want to face them. I mean, I think the top of the East is just so good that, you know, Philly's just too dependent on, on Joel Embiid for their success. And, you know, if he gets injured or, you know, if something goes awry at that situation and, you know, again, even if they're at full health, I, I just I just look at them as the most vulnerable team at the top. I think they have the worst coaching out of all of the teams in, in the top, 
part of our bracket, and you know we'll we'll have a rare coaching advantage in that matchup. If, if we have, say, this is, that would probably be the only team in the first round we might have a, a coaching advantage in. And you know, honestly, I would like to see them in the first round to see if if Domas can get another crack at Embiid for a seven game series. I, I thought he actually did a pretty solid job the first game. He got into foul trouble eventually, but you know, I I like to see that matchup because I, I want to see Domas you know, kind of take that next step in tier because that even with miles being a great interior defender or a great defender, that's one thing that he still struggles with is his interior defense one-on-one against quality bigs. And I think that Domas is really our best hope at having a guy that can at least contain guys off the block and in the paint. So I think that having a series with Embiid and Sabonis would be fun to watch. Sabonis, uh, Sabonis might get eaten alive. I don't know, but I still have confidence in this guy as a defender moving forward. I just think he has too much pride and and energy to not have success on that end of the floor. But, you know, when I look at it, I, I'm still going to go with Philly, even though, they, again, Embiid, I, I get that fact that he's, you know, a demon for us. He kills us. But I just don't trust the rest of the team outside of him. Yeah, I was just – I'm thinking because, you know, we're not – we're not going to get that two seed to face, you know, the Brooklyn Nets or anything like that. So you're looking at teams like Miami, Boston, Philly, those those three teams. And while you didn't even mention it, you mentioned it on the setting the pace show that, you know, you look at their home their home road splits and they're like, what, 23 and two at home and like 10 and 19 or 10, and 20 on on the road. I know that could be it. Yeah, I know that could be a big difference. Of course, it doesn't mean much if the Pacers are the fifth seed and the and the Philadelphia 76ers are the fourth seed. But uh, the one team I have been circling and looking at all year is the Boston Celtics, and I know we would have a tremendous um, – or the Boston Celtics would have a tremendous coaching advantage in that game between Brad Stevens and Nate McMillan. But I just think with the size, you either got to put um, Ennis Cantor or – uh, I'm trying to think of the kid's name. Grant Williams, Robert Williams, and there's someone else I completely forget his name. But I don't see any of those guys in a six, seven game series being able to defend Devon Sabonis. And they lack the size. They got Kimball Walker as their point guard, six foot. And they got a bunch of wings, but they have no true size to match our size. And I think I'd be very interested to see. We're going to see that matchup two more times before the playoffs, so we'll get a better idea. But you got to look at it the first time we played them. We beat them, and Sabonis had a big and Sabonis had a big game. So I think our size, along with our with our defense, I think very I think Boston could be a very very much a um, a good matchup that I think we could win in the first round. Um, I think both these matchups, of course, if we were to get them, I think we'd have to have home court advantage in both of them. I don't see this Pacers team winning one even two games on the road in the playoffs, but that's who I see. I think at the Boston Celtics would probably be the ideal matchup, but if we're talking about playoff matchups we want to see, I think you and me both want to agree that we want to, we would like to see a Pacers-Heat first-round matchup because I know all that crap talking and all that stuff, that would be so exciting to watch over a probably five- or six-game series. Yeah, that would, that would be by far the most entertaining. I think that would be – you know, from a fan perspective and from I a think narrative. I would honestly go bold watching that series afterwards. I'd be pulling my hair out every game because that's how I was the first two games of the year. Yeah, the, the Heat the heat just terrified me because of the, the way they play, just their their connectiveness, their ability to move the ball. I think Eric Spolstra has done a really good job of 
kind of coming out of LeBron James' shadow as a coach and done a really good job down there. But yeah, I mean, you know, you get the TJ Warren revenge series, be able to prove that he's on, you know, that kind of offensive level of a guy like Jimmy Butler. And, you know, I think, I, I, I mean, I understand Jimmy Butler is a top 10 player in this league because of his defense. But if you talk about offensively, I don't think Jimmy Butler is a clearly superior offensive player to TJ Warren. I think he gets a lot of his points from the line and, you know, he, he's able to draw a lot of fouls, but honestly, when I watch Jimmy Butler play, I'm not, you know, he's not on, on a level like Kevin Durant or, you know, LeBron or, or Giannis or some of these other dominant offensive players, but you would get, you would get the TJ Warren revenge series and you would get the Bam versus Sabonis series. I know a lot of Heat fans love to talk about DeMontis Sabonis. I so thought that was get, the funniest thing ever, how they met in the finals in the skills competition. That was so bizarre. I mean, I, I texted you that Sabonis could not have asked for a better finals matchup, and he lost. Go figure. But you would and get he hit you, the three. He hit the three after Bam did, and that just hurt me so much. He rushed. I know this is off off topic, but he rushed the second, the first shot because Bam it went up, and he ran up and shot it as he was still kind of yeah. Moving. He was like two two steps behind the spot where you were supposed to shoot at. And I think it's because he got like one or two steps behind Bam. Yeah, he. I think he was just. I think he kind of panicked a little bit. But you know, I I, I told people don't sleep on Sabonis because he can hit those threes in kind of a warm up situation. And you know, he he went out and represented as well. That was a really fun skills challenge. Congrats to Bam on that. I think he's a great player. But you you would get in that and series. You, specifically, I think it's just funny though. You you kept talking. Uh, you and me both were like, Bam's not a good shooter. That he makes <laughs> he made the first two. He's not going to make the third one. Of course, Sabonis does in the finals and. I guess every blind squirrel finds his nut, or at least three of them in that situation. But I'll ask you this real fast before we finish the show. Uh, the the All Star game implemented the Elam ending, where after the after the third quarter, you added twenty. This situation was twenty four points to the leading team score, and instead of playing to a clock, you know they play. Uh, the the score was one fifty seven in the All Star game. Do you like the Elam ending? Uh, I know a lot of people have had positive. Uh, remarks about it. Uh, it's been used in the TM in, in the uh, in the basketball tournament. That's that's what's literally called the basketball tournament. How do you feel about the Elam ending? Do you think it might be something that could be in the future of the NBA? How do you like? How do you how do you think about it? Yeah, I have to I have to be completely honest. I I'm, I ate a lot of crow with my opinion on that. I kind of laughed at it to be honest. I thought it was just this pathetic attempt to kind of force you know more Kobe Bryant tribute stuff into the game and and i i thought it was a fantastic ending i I thought that it was one of the hardest played all-star games um i've seen in a long time probably ever i'm gonna be honest i haven't watched the all-star game more than probably like six or seven times just because i usually only watch it when the pacers are represented in it and i think it also doesn't i think it also helped that there was charity involved but yeah that elam ending really played a factor yeah i i think it was just giving players more than just okay, we're going to run out the clock here. We're going to do this. It gave them something more to play for. I felt like that that kind of, that number gave them a goal. And when you give competitors like NBA players, professional athletes, a goal, I think you bring out a much better product out of them. And like you said, the charity aspect was great. Um, You know, so that probably drove toward a little bit, but I honestly think just that number goal to work towards, I think is something that, that really kind of drove up the competition in a way. And and I thought it was a great great ending. I was completely wrong on on how that would impact the All Star game. I thought it was just a silly add on for them. But you know, I think the players really responded well, and I hope that it I, wasn't just a one off 
uh, performance. Yeah. I like it too because it brings back that back that um that uh, what do you call it that playground type of factor where it's like hey first to first to twenty one wins it's like hey first to this score wins now and now you get more buzzer beater effect you know of course they're gonna have to tweak it a little bit with the free throw thing that. That kind of you know ruined it a little bit, but I think you know like like any new rule, you got to implement it, see how it is, experiment and 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 grow on it. And I think this is a great landing. I think it's a great spot to put it in a national televised game where everyone got to see it in in fact. And I think it's interesting. I I listened to Zach Lowe's podcast. He actually had Nick Elamon, the guy that created the Elamani. Did you know he was actually from Ball State University right here in Muncie, Indiana? I did not. Oh. I, I believe he's a professor there, but I, I was completely surprised about that. And I thought that was pretty interesting, a little bit off topic. But, yeah, I, I'll be very much interested to see how the elementing is implemented, how it's changed. Is it put in the NBA? I think it very much could be put into um, the G League. I think that'd be a very interesting uh, way to put it in. Maybe even in the – maybe I think if they could put it in the Summer League this year, uh, once we get to the Summer League in July – I think that's a good starting ground. Maybe get into the into the G League. I don't know if it'll hit the NBA level, but I think I, I kind of thought of it like this: if it if it goes to the NBA and trickles down to college and high school and you know elementary school and middle school kids, I see all the time in state playoff games in basketball where teams are up by you know six or seven points in the fourth quarter or in the second half or whatever. And they literally just hold the ball, and that's mostly because you know there's no shot clock, at least in the state of Indiana in high school sports. So I think if there's a target score to hit, if that team needs to hit that target score, they're going to actually try to go score instead of literally just stalling and holding the ball for the final six minutes. And that's just something I I just absolutely cannot stand. Uh, the basketball the basketball guy in me just absolutely hates when he sees that. But um, I'll be very interested to see where his elementing goes and. Uh, if it makes any kind of traction in the near future. Yeah, if nothing else, it provide it provides a much better all-star game for us to watch. I admittedly don't keep up with uh, high school as much as you do. Um, you know, appreciate your insight on the high school aspect of it because I, you know, I'm not really aware of how they operate too, too much. I played basketball for like three weeks in high school as a conditioning thing for football, and it didn't work out for me too well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I could see it hitting lower levels of basketball. I, I I don't know if it'll ever reach the NBA level um, just because it, it kind of destroys like what teams are doing in the first three quarters. Um, but it, it, I think, you know, if at lower levels or, you know, certain in instances where it could be used, um, you know, but, but if nothing else, again, I think it provides a, a much more competitive all-star exhibition type game, um, you know, in games that necessarily may be meaningless you know, you provide a little more of an incentive to do more and do better. Like you said, that target score kind of bring, brings back the primal basketball player in a lot of these guys. And instead of just, you know, winding out the clock and, oh, there's eight minutes left in the quarter, let's get, get the hell out of here. They, they're able to at least say, all right, we're at 18 points. We need six more. Let's get it done. Let's go. And it brings out more energy. I loved it. So that's going to conclude this episode of the Circle City Sports Podcast. We appreciate you guys for sending in your listener questions. We appreciate you guys listening to the show. Um, and we hope you guys have a good rest of the day.